Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Draining the Heartland, Authoritarian Populism in Rural America. We've opened with Bob Dylan's My Back Pages, performed by pianist Keith Jarrett off of the 1968 album Somewhere Before. The song features Charlie Hayden on bass and Paul Modian on drums. Bob Dylan accompanies us throughout this episode. The 1980s farm crisis defined an entire generation of farmers and the rural communities that surrounded and relied on them. Interest rates soared. Farmland value dropped. A decade of record-breaking production in farm commodities led to a glut, a surplus, that depressed prices. Exports declined as the U.S. imposed an embargo on the Soviet Union. Farmers went bankrupt, foreclosed on their farms, or sold them. They rarely made their money back on the land. We know now that the farm crisis of the 1980s can be traced at least as far back as the rising land values of the 1940s. The crisis, however, continues today. Since 2008, farmland across the world, and especially in the Midwest, has seen greater investment by financial actors, such as hedge and pension funds, insurance agencies, and other private equity investors. This has led to a process of land consolidation that has increased the size of farms and shuttered family farms throughout the country. Rather than bring investment to rural institutions, the neoliberal policies of the 1970s and 1980s, combined with the financial crises of the 21st century, created a hostile climate for life in rural America, what our guest today calls sacrifice zones. In response, many people have opted to flee rural communities for the suburbs. In doing so, they leave behind them sometimes desolate small towns. Hospitals, post offices, mom-and-pop shops, even schools have closed their doors as rural communities have been hollowed out, abandoned to the forces of the financial sector. Despite the fact that many people who support today's slide into authoritarian populism are wealthy suburban residents, a non-trivial portion are members of rural communities that have been the subject of multiple crises, from the loss of farmland and the shuttering of family farms to the opioid crisis. Today, Brady Heberlin speaks with Mark Edelman, an anthropology professor and affiliate of the Graduate Center at Hunter College in New York City. Though Mark Edelman's work on land tenure, social movements, and agrarian issues spans continents, we focus today on Edelman's work on the hollowing out of rural America and the rise of authoritarian populism. Edelman argues that the ways in which rural communities have been abandoned by capital have been a cornerstone in the rise of authoritarian populism and racial resentment. Authoritarian populism, Edelman argues, cannot be defeated until and unless we address the ways that rural America has been abandoned. And now, draining the heartland on Interchange on WFHB. The Democrats and much of the left blame the rise of the Trump administration on his appeal to racism, you know, perhaps most notably in his promise to build the wall to keep out Mexican and Central American immigrants, but also in this wide-reaching repressive campaign against anti-racist and anti-fascist organizing efforts. But you argue that the rise of authoritarian populism is linked to the production of sacrifice zones. 
what are these sacrifice zones and what's their relationship to authoritarian populism? Well, sacrifice zones is not not a term that, that I invented. And uh, I encountered it several places, but maybe uh, in the most meaningful way in a book by Chris Hedges and Joe Sacco, which is a very ethnographic book where they go to several different zones of the United States and they visit zones where they suggest that capitalists had free reign and treated people and resources as being something to extract and as disposable. So um, I, I adopted that, that framework to some extent in, in, in this article that you read. And um, I think really the, the most important thing, if we're thinking about the rise of Trump and authoritarian populism in the United States, is to view it in, in, in connection to, um, to two processes. One is the way in which centrist political parties, and in the United States, it's a democratic party, in Europe, uh, the social democratic parties, in India, the Congress party, basically abandoned any meaningful defense of the welfare state and of the working classes. And uh, this was a very deliberate move. It, it occurs at the the same time that there is a, an ascendance of a more cutthroat variety of capitalism that some people call neoliberalism. The idea, and it's really an extremist idea, that all of society's problems can be resolved through the market and market mechanisms. So I think that that sense of abandonment felt very acutely in among the, the working class in the United States not just the white working class, but the entire working class, and, and felt very acutely in particular in small towns and rural areas that have borne the brunt of neoliberalism, and many of which are arguably sacrifice zones. Can you say a little bit more about the relationship between neoliberalism and the financial sector? This is something that you really pull on, um, both in your Jacobin piece and in the piece Hollowed Out Heartland. The relation between financialization and neoliberalism, well, I think to, to understand that, and it connects to what I was saying before about the abandonment by the Democratic Party mainstream, at least, of uh, the, the working class, one, one has to really go back, I think, to uh, the Clinton administration, if not before. You begin to get a neoliberal turn in many parts of the world by the late 1970s, it's connected to a number of different international uh, phenomena to the, um, to the collapse of the, the Bretton Woods framework for regulating uh, the international economy and so on. But under Clinton, you get this um, pronounced shift, and it's both a policy shift and a discursive ideological shift uh, against what Clinton called in his State of the Union address in 1996, big government. He said the time of big government is over. And um, the, the administration embarked in a very determined way on implementing pro-market kinds of um, policies. Al Gore was put in charge of this reinventing government uh, partnership, the idea of which was to bring the supposed efficiency of the private sector into the public sector. Um, they 
managed to eliminate more than 400,000 federal government jobs and, and shuttered many government offices, many of them in rural areas. They, of course, uh, pushed for and then uh, saw through the North American Free Trade Agreement, which um, had a deleterious effect on uh, the U.S. industrial sector in, in particular, they oversaw the conclusion of the Uruguay round of uh, the um, international trade talks and the founding of the World Trade Organization the year after NAFTA. And they pushed for and secured the repeal of Glass-Steagall, which was this Depression-era law that separated investment banking from commercial banking. And I think that's maybe of all the things that they did, the thing that speaks most closely to the question you're asking about the relation between financialization and neoliberalism, because what the repeal of Glass-Steagall did in effect was it turned the entire economy into a kind of playground for big investment banks and for other kinds of financial actors, hedge funds, uh, pension funds, private equity outfits and partnerships of all different kinds. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Draining the Heartland. Brady Heberlin speaks with Mark Edelman on the ways in which capitalism and the financial sector in particular have abandoned rural communities and led to the rise of authoritarian populism in so-called sacrifice zones. And one could also look at other things. One could look at the 1996 Farm Bill, which, among other things, ended supply management and ended the practice of putting price floors for major commodity crops. And and this was something that had a huge impact on undermining what was left of the small-scale farming sector, and, and it contributed to processes of farm consolidation the new opening up of uh, possibilities for investment banks and so on also contributed to processes of farmland consolidation. So there are a bunch of processes that are converging and that I think a lot of people experienced as a kind of betrayal. This sort of juggernaut didn't really abate so much when uh, George W. Bush took over because he he was very much in favor of this model also and um, was pushing the free trade area of the Americas, which ultimately the Brazilians and and other Latin American governments uh, refused to go along with. And it it didn't uh, come to pass, but he was very much also an advocate of that sort of relatively unregulated free trade. And then Obama gets in. And in addition to his being a black man, which was a problem for some sector of the white population in and of itself, it's painful to acknowledge, but it's true. He he gets in and the recovery program that uh, he oversaw, TARP, the Troubled Assets uh, Relief Program, which is this huge program of $700 billion or something, mainly benefited big banks and corporations. Um, and it didn't trickle down a lot to the people who got hit by the crisis uh, of 2008 and afterwards. So the, the sense of abandonment um, 
by the Democratic Party is in some ways well-founded and led a sector of the population to be seduced by Trump and all of his uh, his rhetoric about the responsibility of, of your problems being due to minorities, lazy public employees, immigrants, uh, and so on. Some of our listeners, especially those who lived through the 1980s, are aware of the way that a sort of shift in policies combined with a surplus in agricultural commodities led to this major crisis that we see the financial sector really taking advantage of. There's this process of land consolidation that in some sense was really pronounced in the 1980s, but is today really marked by the collapse of family farms, etc. Do you see a sort of common thread between the policies of the 1970s and the crisis, you know, the rise of authoritarian populism today? You know, one could go even further back than the 1970s, if one's going to look at authoritarian populism today. In, in 1968, George Wallace ran for president. He had been the governor of uh, Alabama, uh, an outright racist, a, a very reactionary candidate. He was articulating a program in some ways not that different than what Trump and other figures in the Trump administration articulate. And maybe what was different about it was that he was running at a time when the civil rights movement had just achieved major victories, when um, the message had to be delivered in perhaps more coded form than is the case today. People talk about Trump emitting dog whistles using coded language and so on. But actually, the language, to me, doesn't seem that coded a lot of the time. It's it's pretty direct and brutal. And, you know, the kind of incitement to hatred go, goes beyond what George Wallace was doing in 1968. And Wallace, of course, drew on an older stream of, you know, racism and uh, conservative populism. One could look at the 1930s with Father Coughlin. One could go Look at Huey Long in Louisiana. There, there, there are many examples. It's a recurring problem in the United States. Um, and what makes it maybe worse now is that you have, depending on which poll you believe, 35% or 45% of the population that uncritically, for the most part, embraces this and accepts it. A bullet from the back of a bush took Medgar Evers' blood A finger fired the trigger to his name It's time for a break. This is Only a Pawn in Their Game by Bob Dylan, off of the 1964 release The Times They Are Changing. More on authoritarian populism and the hollowing out of rural America with Mark Edelman when Interchange returns. But he can't be blamed He's only a pawn in their game The South politician preaches to the poor white man You got more than the blacks, don't complain You're better than them, you've been born with white skin, they explain And the Negro's name is used, it is plain For the politician's gain as he rises to fame And the poor white remains On the caboose of the train But it ain't him to blame He's only a pawn in their game
The deputy sheriffs, the soldiers, the governors get paid And the marshals and cops get the same But the poor white man's used in the hands of them all like a tool He's taught in his school From the start by the rule That the laws are with him To protect his white skin Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. We're speaking with Mark Edelman about the rise of authoritarian populism and the abandonment of rural communities to the forces of capitalism. Across the country, resources in rural and urban communities alike are being extracted for capital gain. We discuss how racial resentment and repression of labor organizing divides people who might otherwise fight together against their common enemies. In the hoofbeats pounding his brain and he's told how to walk in a pack Shoot in the back with his fist in a clinch To hang and to lynch To hide neath the hood And many people think that people in poor, white, predominantly white communities and people in urban black communities, for example, actually should have a lot in common to fight for. Both, both populations have been, you know, intensely abandoned by capital but it seems like this differentiation and these political polls have very much been produced in order to win electoral results, in order to, for example, divide labor organizing. That's been sort of this long process. Can you say a little bit about the history of this differentiation, this sort of pulling apart of people in poverty, whether it's rural communities, urban communities? I mean, this is an old story. It's the biggest and most successful game that the dominant groups that the capitalist class has has used to divide working people. And it goes back a very long time, uh, certainly to the period of slavery, to the period of reconstruction following the Civil War, and and very intensely in in that period of reaction that follows Reconstruction uh, into, say, the 1920s. Um, You know, I I think of the the old Bob Dylan song about uh, the the poor white in the South and saying he's only a pawn in their game. And that's exactly uh, the the sad and unfortunate truth that people that do have – Many shared interests are being, in some ways, talked to in a way that really there is some kind of fundamental difference and that they have to to fight each other rather than their their actual uh, class enemies. And um, you mentioned that this is a, a sort of tension and a difference that is actively produced. It's very much actively produced um, every day in many, many different ways. And one of the big manifestations, and and I write about this a little bit in the Jacobin article and in the the other more academic article you mentioned, is that um, there's been a very intense process, particularly in small towns and rural areas, of downward mobility among a sector of the white population, really among all sectors of the population, but significantly among the white population. And the way in which people process this a lot of the time is a sense of being aggrieved, that I'm entitled to something better. And here I am scrambling, working two or three jobs, or perhaps not being able to find work, living in a community that has been taken apart by forces that I don't understand, but I can be led to understand as being the fault of somebody else, 
This creates a sense of grievance. It's very, very powerful. One of the things I argue in, in these articles is that we can't separate out the economic disaster that has befallen so many small towns and, and rural areas from the racism that some people insist is characteristic of at least a sector of Trump supporters, because the economic stress that people are feeling uh, so much of the time, and it's economic stress from, from low wages, from indebtedness, from all of these different forces, the economic stress, and, and there's a big body of psychological research literature that shows this, makes, gives people a greater propensity to be suspicious of or even to hate an outgroup, okay? And that outgroup could be immigrants, it could be people who are racialized or, or ethnically different, it could be any number of, of other groups, but the racial piece of that is huge. And it, and it connects also to notions of masculinity and patriarchy and to the impossibility that many, particularly young, but also middle-aged and, and, and older men feel that they have not been able to be adequate providers for their families. And this creates a sense of very intense uh, anger that is uh, easily channeled by demagogues. One of the tasks that you're taking up in both of your pieces then is to historicize and articulate what is happening systemically that uh, we can attribute some of these grievances to. And you note how hedge and pension funds, private equity shops have effectively emptied out local wealth. And so maybe this is one of the things that people who are feeling this abandonment but can't quite pin what kind of factors are at play are, are actually sensing but you note that mutual savings banks, local mom and pop shops and credit unions had a very different relationship with people in rural communities and especially farmers um, that maybe you know, predates this sort of sense of abandonment. What would you say is different now uh, and how does that contribute to the destabilization of rural communities and the sort of sense of abandonment that people, especially in these far hinterlands, are feeling? Well, that, that's really the key question. And it has so many dimensions, that it's a little difficult to know where to begin. But one could begin probably with what happened to banks. There used to be locally owned mutual banks in pretty much every small town. And it was a different bank in every town. And the directors of the bank lived in the town and they would make loans to small business people, often with a handshake on the basis of trust and knowing them as neighbors and community members. And they wouldn't check their credit rating or anything a lot of the time. So these banks are sitting there. And then, then in the 1980s, investor geniuses come up with this idea that you could make a lot of money by turning uh, mutual savings banks, which are owned basically by the depositors, into stock corporations. So the private equity groups go all around the United States, putting little deposits in, into um, mutual savings banks all over the place. So you could put $100 in a bank in, in Connecticut, and you could put $100 in a bank in South Dakota, and so on. And they did this all over the country. And when the Initial public offerings would occur prior to the IPO. Anybody who had an, an account there could buy stock at an insider price. You'd put $100 in there, and then all of a sudden you get the, the news that you can buy stock. Well, you take $10 million or something, and you buy $10 million worth of stock. 
and it goes up 15 or 20% or more in, in a couple of months after the, the initial public offering and you make a killing. There's no other investment that was that good. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Draining the Heartland. Brady Heberlin speaks with Mark Edelman on the ways in which capitalism and the financial sector in particular have abandoned rural communities and led to the rise of authoritarian populism in so-called sacrifice zones. This started to happen big time in the 1980s, accelerated into the 1990s. The directors of these small local mutual banks were complicit in this because they they would get the stock bonanza also and could cash out massively. So the banks either get shuttered or sold to big regional chains. And all of a sudden, the, the small business person with a hardware store or a diner or something on Main Street has more difficulty getting credit that they need. And in many communities, there wasn't a bank anymore. And you, and you get the creation of what The Economist and, and, and some other uh, very pro-capitalist uh, sources refer to as banking deserts. So people have nowhere to bank at all. And, and this set in motion a whole series of very destructive forces that are mostly invisible to the naked eye. Unless you're on the inside of this kind of process, you wouldn't see this happening. You just know that all of a sudden, businesses are having a hard time. They're closing. There's no more bank. You have to cash your check with a payday lender and so on. So it's these kinds of processes that are hard to, to apprehend or to comprehend that were occurring and that begin this downward spiral in so many communities. You're noting that the finance capital, the neoliberal policies, that affects every part of social life. In both of your pieces, you note post offices, local newspapers, mom and pop shops, hospitals, schools, nursing homes, libraries, family farms are all facing a sort of consolidation at the hand of the financial sector or they just close. Um, and some people, especially with schools, for example, argue that that's a good thing, that we're seeing these institutions take on an economy of scale. But you're suggesting that this is much more pernicious and detrimental to small and especially rural communities? There's definitely an effect on rural communities. It's very severe. And talking about that, I don't want to minimize the impact on many urban communities, too, because you have sacrifice zones that exist uh in in New York City, very close to where I live and in Los Angeles and in in Chicago and many other big cities. I think the key thing is that these financial actors, particularly since the 1980s, look for anything that they can skim off. And they're very imaginative in terms of how to make money out of things that, you know, a normal person would look at and it wouldn't occur to, to, to us that, wow, you can make money off of that. And, and, and the example that I, I develop a little bit in, in, in the papers is, is the example of trailer parks. Okay. Trailer parks are the quintessential uh, home of, you know, the poorest of the poor, often uh, the white poor, but not only. And um, 6% of the U.S. population lives in a mobile home or trailer, um, which is is maybe not a huge amount, but it's like tens of millions of people. And and in rural areas, of course, uh, it's more than 6%. Outside investors 
found that trailer parks were actually a fantastic investment. And when I started looking into this, I found that there were, there were financial whizzes who left Goldman Sachs to go and invest in trailer parks. And there's a huge consolidation in the ownership of trailer parks. And, and, and there, there's a partnership of, of a couple of guys who, who run what they call a mobile home university that teaches other people uh, how to get in on this. And they claim to own half a billion dollars worth of, of trailer parks. So what do they do? They go in there and most trailer parks were sort of mom and pop type businesses, locally owned. They buy them out. If there's a swimming pool, they close the swimming pool because then you don't have to carry a liability insurance policy. They raise everybody's rent by $20. And, you know, when you're doing that on a massive scale, you're generating quite a big cash flow and, and the costs are minimal. The administrative costs and, and, and the costs of physical plant and so on. It's, it's another one of these investment practices that can generate apparently 20% a year which is pretty outstanding from the point of view of, of private equity and hedge fund and so on. And, and you get the really big actors moving into that. And main streets, on the famous main streets of American small towns and small cities, it used to be that there was a diversified economy of, of small retail businesses, mostly locally owned, not all of them probably. And we've seen a succession of things occur. With the opening of big box stores and malls, main streets declined. And then when the, the financial geniuses started to engage in leveraged buyouts of all these different chains and so on that are in the malls and of the malls themselves, the malls started to go belly up. You know, it was a huge bonanza for e-commerce and particularly for Amazon, which increasingly has a kind of monopoly and, and monopsony power that, you know, is unprecedented in U.S. history, where monopolies have historically been very, very powerful. Darkness at the break of noon Shadows, even the silver spoon The handmade blade, the child's balloon Eclipses both the sun and moon To understand you know too soon There is no sense in trying It's time for a break. This is It's Alright Ma, I'm Only Bleeding by Bob Dylan, off of his 1965 album Bringing It All Back Home. When we return, we'll look at evictions as one of the many effects of finance capitalism. Stay with us on Interchange on WFHB. Plays wasted words, proves to warn that he not busy being born is busy dying. Temptation's page flies out the door You follow, find yourself at war Watch waterfalls of pity roar You feel the moan, but unlike before You discover that you just be one more person crying So don't fear If you hear A foreign sound To your ear it's all right, Ma, I'm only sighing. As 
some worn victory, some downfall Private reasons, great or small Can be seen in the eyes of those that call To make all that should be killed to crawl While others say don't hate nothing at all Except hatred Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. We're speaking with Mark Edelman about the rise of authoritarian populism and the abandonment of rural communities to the forces of capitalism. Right now, COVID-19 is catalyzing sweeping evictions in perhaps the worst housing crisis since the 2008 recession. The housing crisis is just one of the many crises spurred on by the financialization of everyday life. Our preachers preach of evil fates. Teachers teach that knowledge waits can lead to hundred dollar plates. Goodness hides behind its gates. But even the president of the United States sometimes must have to stand naked. I want to go back to the point about the, the trailer parks and mobile homes. Um, you mentioned in the Jacobin article that the housing crisis and evictions have had a major role to play in this sort of crisis. And obviously with the COVID pandemic, millions of people are losing their jobs. Unemployment rates today are rivaling the Great Depression. You know, we're seeing a wave of evictions with many more to come, but this crisis isn't really new. How would you say evictions and the housing crisis factor into the rise of authoritarian populism and the making of the sacrifice zone? Well, first of all, I I wrote these articles before the pandemic hit. And, um, Many of the forces that I talked about have actually become even more negative and and horrific since the pandemic. And and housing is one of those. There was, of course, a major crisis of homelessness that occurred in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, which, lest we forget, was triggered by uh, the financialization of mortgages, many of them administered by predatory lenders. Uh, so when, when the economy melts down, there was a huge uptick in home foreclosures, mostly of people who had lost work or lost income or whose loan terms were sufficiently onerous that they simply couldn't stay above water anymore. So for several years following the crisis, there was something like a million foreclosures per year. And it took a long time to drop down to pre-crisis levels, but foreclosures are still many hundreds of thousands per year. When you start to look at evictions, the the issue with evictions is, is even more severe because the poor tend not to own their homes. They tend to live in rental housing. You know, if you can't make the rent, uh, eventually there could be an eviction proceeding against you, or you could be pressured by the threat of an eviction proceeding to to simply engage in self-eviction. Uh, and there's a lot of that which is not registered in these statistics. So you get this huge uh, uptick in, in people losing uh, the roof over their heads, either either through foreclosure or through through eviction. And this has uh, consequences that ramify out in very terrible ways in terms of children's education. They have to to frequently change schools and and often to less desirable schools in terms of people's employability. Employers now routinely run credit checks and uh, landlords routinely run credit checks And if you have an eviction, that will affect the possibilities you have of obtaining employment or housing. And just to zoom out a little bit, why why would this poverty drive authoritarian populism of all things? Is it 
because of this tendency to blame the other or are there other aspects of poverty that drive this you know need to look for a sort of populist leader first of all i think the spread of authoritarian populism and we could talk about the united states or we could talk about europe or places like india turkey it depends a lot on the production of a kind of undereducation and on the production of lack of critical thinking and and there are many pieces of that flow into this clearly americans uh and not just americans who are conservative but all americans are somewhat easily manipulated by social media now the problem is probably much worse and and I have some studies on this that I referred to in the paper it's probably much worse for conservative news outlets that spread fake news and the trolls and bots that are associated with them and so on falsehood of that sort tends to spread mo- most quickly on the internet but I think the key link between this process of impoverishment and and all of the grievance that comes with it and authoritarian populism is the stress that it induces literally makes it difficult for people to consider the ways that we would normally consider to be calm rational ways what is going on around them and they become more open to conspiracy theories to quackery in the medical field to anti-science kinds of ideas to to all all this kind of stuff that demagogues and and certainly Trump is uh in some ways very good at this traffic in so i i think that's big part of it that there's a link between economic disaster physical and emotional stress and a propensity to authoritarianism and i guess one of the remarkable things about all of this both in terms of the stress that's created the kind of subject that's produced by this undereducation by poverty um is that it seems to really benefit the financial sector and it makes it seem like in some sense these crises are sort of inevitable that capitalism requires them in order to have underdeveloped spaces that maybe then later are consolidated or that see an influx of capital what do these crises reveal about capitalism and how and how the crises themselves are produced it seems as if every 10 or 12 years now we have a major crisis of one sort or another that requires a massive bailout for large corporations and banks and you know this ought to give pause to people who insist on the beauty of the the free market system and so on but it doesn't seem to it, it seems as if the kind of uh payoff that that is given to the most powerful actors in times of crisis isn't really a major concern for most Americans yet. So I think that that's a major problem. I think it's not that most of the financial actors are really far-sighted and and planning way ahead and trying to empty out certain zones so that they can move in another kind of economic activity or anything. I think in a way the opposite is true. They're not far-sighted. There there's a lot of short-termism and financial markets and and that of course is one of the problems and it it connects to all sorts of things it connects to the inability of of the powerful interests and of the political class to do anything really serious about the climate emergency because they they can't think 5 years ahead or 10 years ahead so now you have 
a large portion of the West and the Rockies that is on fire. You have 100-year storms hitting the Gulf Coast and, and the Gulf of Mexico, uh, not every 100 years, but every one or two years. People are very slow to connect the dots and, and to take the measures that are, are absolutely needed to address that critical, critical situation. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Draining the Heartland. Brady Heberlin speaks with Mark Edelman on the ways in which capitalism and the financial sector in particular have abandoned rural communities and led to the rise of authoritarian populism in so-called sacrifice zones. Even though these crises seem to affect poor rural communities, I mentioned earlier sort of the far hinterlands, the really deep rural areas, and also affect urban areas, like you mentioned sacrifice zones popping up not so far from you in New York City. We saw that a lot of people who voted for Trump in the last election were from either suburbs or the sort of near hinterlands, I would say. How do you explain that tendency in those regions, which maybe aren't hit as badly by these crises? Your, your question, I think, is, is an excellent one, because we shouldn't talk about the rural or rural zones in, in really broad strokes, because we're talking about zones that are very different one from another and that are much more heterogeneous along almost any dimension in terms of race and ethnicity and social class and uh, every other kind of thing than is usually acknowledged, particularly by the, the punditry and the media. So we're talking about places that are pretty complicated and, and diverse. It's also the case that rural zones are mainly white. The suburbs in the United States in many places are mainly white although less so than they used to be. Just as it's a mistake to talk about rural zones in broad strokes, I think it's a problem that so much of the media discourse has talked about Trump voters in broad strokes. There's a sector of Trump voters that are linked to very large and powerful corporate interests, people that are extremely wealthy, particularly linked to uh, energy industries, to uh, mining and extractive industries of various kinds. There's a sector in the suburbs, in the small business sector, often people who are quite affluent, maybe don't have a lot of university education, but maybe they do also, and who also supported Trump. And, th and then you have the, the almost stereotypical Trump voter who is the relatively uh, low-income rural resident. To collapse all of those different sectors of people into one single actor with the same motivations and the same grievances and, and so on, I think is a big mistake. And I want to relate that back to neoliberalism in some sense, which sort of has these two, two branches. On one hand, it's opening up this space playground, as you mentioned, or the sort of field of experimentation for corporations because of a lack of regulation. And on the other hand, it has a discourse of individualizing economic issues uh, in a way that might contribute to this sense of a grievance in rural communities, both the deregulatory playground for corporations interacting with people's sense that their economic burdens are purely individual, are purely, you know, a fault or a metric of their ability to have a job, to have provide housing. Well, I think you, you rightly indicate that there's a constant drumbeat of that particular idea. 
that you are responsible for yourself, that I don't want to pay for your health insurance policy, that your success or failure is a result of your own efforts. And, and of course, this ignores uh, many, many things. Uh, one of the, the ironies of it is that this discourse is most prevalent in heavily Republican states, uh, largely rural states. And these are the states that receive much more in federal spending than they pay in in tax revenue, while so-called blue states like New York and California and so on are massively subsidizing states like Kentucky and, and so on. So that's one irony of it. I think the other piece of it that's very important that we haven't mentioned so far is that in tandem with the deregulatory agenda, there was a very concerted effort to bust the remaining unions as much as possible. You know, the unions are, are a bit of a mixed bag in some ways. There, there are unions that are very combative and understand uh, what their task is. And there are other ones that work hand in glove with management. But, you know, the historical attitude of the, the union movement that an injury to one is an injury to all was something that created a kind of sense of shared possibilities among people in a shared situation and that generated solidarity among people rather than fragmenting them. So when you get a situation like you have now in the United States where there is at-will employment where employers can fire anybody for any reason at any time, and this doesn't exist so much in the European social democracies, even though those too have been weakened in many respects. Uh, you can't just up and fire uh, a waiter in a restaurant in France or Switzerland because you will have to deal with a, a collective bargaining unit and, and a grievance procedure, and it's very complicated. So when, when you get the near total domination of at-will employment in the United States and the near total retreat of unions, particularly in the private sector, when, when you get that situation, people are defenseless. They're left to their own devices. The contract is individual. The, the so-called right-to-work ideology, which again is a very old Republican ideology, way before Trump, is, is an ideology of individual contracting. So you go into the employer-employee relationship as a powerless individual with no wealth and without a legal team and, and, and without the knowledge that you need to defend yourself. And you're facing a giant corporation that dictates the terms to you. So this is what has gone on. Well, you can't read out your Bible. You can't fall down on your knees and pray to the Lord for the mama, but it ain't gonna do no good. You're gonna need my help someday. It's time for a break. This is Quit Your Lowdown Ways, recorded in 1962 by Bob Dylan and appearing on Volume 1 of the Bootleg series, released in 1991. When we return, what is to be done to restore livability to rural America? More with Mark Edelman on Draining the Heartland when Interchange returns. But your good man ain't coming home, you better understand you're gonna need, you're gonna need my help someday, someday, gonna need my help someday. Well, if you can't quit your sinning, please quit your low-down way. Now you can run down to the White House. 
house, you can gaze on the Capitol Dome You can knock on the President's gate for the mama But you know it's gonna be too late You're gonna need, you're gonna need My help someday, my help someday Well, if you can't quit your sinning Please quit your low-down way Hitchhike on the highway You can stand all alone by the side of the road Try to flag a ride back home Burn a mama but you ain't gonna ride in my car no more You're gonna need You're gonna need My help someday Oh yes, yeah Well, if you can't quit your sinning Please quit your old down way Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Draining the Heartland, Authoritarian Populism in Rural America. In this segment, we ask Mark Edelman to describe ways out of crisis for rural communities. He notes that voting is one solution, but it's really just a start. If you can't quit your sinning, please quit your low-down way. Do you see the, the next steps forward in fighting this sort of hollowing out? Do you see that being in union organizing or are there other ways that people can mobilize against this sort of emptying out of rural communities, against authoritarian populism? What do you think are next steps? Well, you know, there's a very immediate next step, which we can take on November 3rd or in the lead up to it, uh, which is to to participate in presidential election, which won't solve everything uh, by any means. But I think one of the the uh, ways in which U.S. democracy, which is really almost the most precious thing that we have, uh, undermined is the the lack of participation that exists. And, and, and I harangue uh, my students with this all the time that, you know, 50% of the people under 29 didn't vote in the last presidential election. Well, that's something that really uh, people ought to give uh, some thought to. Not because our choices are so fantastic necessarily this time around, but we do have a choice between a, a centrist and an uninspiring uh, Democrat uh, who um, I think a lot of people feel a decided lack of enthusiasm about, including me, and somebody who increasingly is uh, showing himself to be a, a flat-out um, fascist. And, you know, fascism in the United States today is not exactly like historical fascism. It's a little bit different. Um, and I think the way it works is you allow uh, a little bit of, of political space so that you and I can have this conversation now and nobody's going to break our door down and take us away. Um, you allow a little bit of political space to placate the uh, intelligentsia and, and to mystify the intelligentsia and the media and for the uh, stigmatized others and we could be talking about African-Americans who, who live in, in low-income neighborhoods or who just happen to be out jogging somewhere. Um, we could talk about immigrants, uh, legal and undocumented. We could talk about uh, other 
uh, ethnic uh, and, and um, gender minorities, um, for the um, for these stigmatized others, you get workplace rage, you get raids on homes, you get these squalid concentration camps that the kids are still in along the southern border and in East Harlem in New York in the Cayuga Center. You, you get all this apparatus that much more resembles historical fascism, and that's what we have to get rid of. That's the number one priority. Now, beyond that, in the medium term, uh, there many different possibilities of things that people can do to reconstitute society because society has been fragmented. And I think, you know, in, in terms of the economic factors that we've been talking about, um, rebuilding cooperatives, we, rebuilding worker-owned enterprises, rebuilding a credit system that allows small businesses to compete adequately, um, Public procurement policies could also be important in this, uh, making sure that schools and other institutions, hospitals, source their food from local farms. There, there are a whole series of things that one can envision that could help to rebuild an economy from the ground up. So there's no one answer, but there are many, many different uh, possibilities. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Draining the Heartland. Brady Heberlin speaks with Mark Edelman on the ways in which capitalism and the financial sector in particular have abandoned rural communities and led to the rise of authoritarian populism in so-called sacrifice zones. A lot of people, especially youth, are not really seeing elected officials responding to the needs of their community. And I think there's a widespread you know, sense of uh, disenfranchisement with, with the establishment in general, whether it's Biden or Trump. And what we're seeing are these mutual aid grassroots efforts, whether it's opening a cooperative or doing uh, eviction defense. They have a way of circumventing, circumventing the kind of uninspiring nature of even the Democratic Party by setting up community spaces, et cetera. Do you see a future for those mutual aid efforts as one of these things that's combating maybe the the limits of our sort of electoral system or well it's been very interesting to observe the the flowering of mutual aid in the pandemic i think we need to remember that mutual aid is a very old tradition with very strong roots precisely in, in some of the communities most affected by the pandemic and the, the economic crisis that came along with it in Black communities and Native communities uh, and so on. There's, there are long traditions of this, but I think the, the beautiful thing about the uh, mutual aid that has occurred during the pandemic is that many people have experienced in, in powerful ways and deeply meaningful ways what it is to act in solidarity. And this is something that cannot be erased uh, afterwards. So I think that's um, hugely important in all of this. And in terms of the, the limits of um, electoral politics, uh, there's something that I hear a fair amount, um, more maybe from people of your generation, people from, of my generation, which is I'm not into politics. I don't care about politics. And, you know, I, I sometimes say to them, well, you know, that's fine. You don't have to be into politics, but your landlord is into politics. 
In, in New York state, the real estate lobby has historically been the most powerful lobby in the state. And your landlord wants to raise your rent and maybe evict you. Uh, so your landlord's into politics. Your employer's into politics. Your employer doesn't want to honor wage and hours legislation, wants to keep the minimum wage nice and low so you have a hard time. Your health insurance company, if you're lucky enough to have health insurance, is into politics. And they're trying to figure out how to keep you uh, from receiving the treatment you need. Uh, and, and on and on. So I think people um, maybe um, could reflect a little bit more on their attitude about uh, political involvement. It's not exactly just a choice or a lifestyle. You know, it's something that invades every portion of your life, whether you acknowledge it or not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot can be said for how mutual aid efforts both have existed for some time in some of the most vulnerable communities and how they start to try to build alternative to these things, try to take not take for granted the fact that the capitalist approaches to healthcare, to schools, et cetera, is the only one that's ever existed, but that there are also alternatives. So you can sort of play on multiple fronts to try to open up other possibilities while fighting for the most survivable, you know, situation. Um, we're coming up on our time. I just wanted to ask you, is there anything else you think people really need to wrestle with right now, either in terms of this long durée of neoliberalism, the making of sacrifice zones, or the upcoming election? I think my views on the upcoming election are, are probably pretty clear from what I've said so far, and, and people definitely need to, to wrestle with that to the extent possible. Um, Maybe one point that I didn't really um, give attention to, but I think is, is worth stating, is that neoliberalism is something that is is not stagnant. And I think we can see pretty clearly recently a faction that's sort of the old doctrinaire free market neoliberalism, and more recently a very nationalist uh, neoliberalism. Uh, that um, is trying to uh, promote policies that previously would have been uh, criticized as protectionism and so on. That's our show. We'll close with Chimes of Freedom, written by Bob Dylan for his 1964 album, Another Side of Bob Dylan. Here it's performed by Dylan with Joan Osborne in 1999. Thanks to Mark Edelman for speaking with us. This has been Draining the Heartland, authoritarian populism in rural America. Brady Heberlin produced today's show with production assistance from Doug Storm. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. As majestic bells of bulls Struck shadows in the south Seeming to be the child of freedom clashing